Asian don't raise him. Um, I want to uh, just briefly introduce myself. I follow, uh, I've known Pastor Al for a while, like 10 plus years. Um, I follow your, your guys' church, Perch Church, loosely, um, but I do follow you guys. I really, um, I appreciate your efforts and the whole intentionality. You know, um, I, I grew up in the church and then for, a, man, a good 10, 15 years, I, I fell away. Um, and then I came back to the Lord in my mid-20s. And, uh, you know, like, do you recall the first time, like, you know, the Holy Spirit touched your heart and, you know, you decided to give your life to, to Jesus Christ? It's such an intimate profound meaningful experience for me because in my 20s man like I was just crazy <laughs> right? just insane so lost right so all types of adjectives angry lost confused you know cynical you name it and then God touched my heart changed me and then I came to the church and man I have such fond memories you know I'm Korean American I have such fond memories of the church but you know in my assessment like man after about a decade in the church, pretty invested, you know, pretty invested in the church. I started having questions, right? I started having questions and certain things just didn't resonate with me in terms of my life experiences in the world. And then a lot of the, I guess, the norms, traditions, and, and the teachings in the church. And, uh, you know, I began to go on this uh, journey of deconstruction. And I feel like that's where the church, the perch is at, right? That's a big part of why you guys are here and doing your thing, right? So again, with that said, I appreciate your journey, uh, man. You got a, you got a brother in Christ. I'm along in the journey as well, right? The more you deconstruct, the longer your hair gets. It's crazy, all right. I thought about that joke while I was sitting there. I was like, uh, our uh, the pa passage for today is uh, Luke chapter 10. Uh, we're gonna go from verse 25 to 37. Um, I'm pretty, pretty chill, pretty relaxed. I'm going to try to get you guys out of here uh, relatively early. Hopefully, there'll be uh, one good reminder or one good insight, uh, something meaningful you guys, uh, for you guys. Um, we're going to break up the uh, parable. Uh, I'm going to start with verses 25 to, uh, 25 to 29, and then we'll read the rest, 30 to 37, okay? So this is the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, beginning with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Uh, I want to pause here. Like, this is a lawyer, essentially, expert in the law. He's a lawyer. And the expert of the law, you know, approaches Jesus with an inquiry. And it's kind of safe to assume through the text that uh, his inquiry, inquiry wasn't, like, 100% authentic, right? He had some uh, ulterior motives in his inquiry. Either he wanted, you know, to test Jesus or he wanted Jesus because Jesus was growing in stature. Uh, he wanted Jesus to kind of approve him, right, validate him or he wanted to kind of test Jesus. Um, so yeah, it, maybe not 100% authentic. There's some probably selfish motive, selfish agenda there. Uh, but he wanted to, it, I think it's safe to assume that he wanted to align himself with uh, power, right? He wanted to align himself with power, with being right, with, with you know, the truth. Um, you know, I, I 
don't vilify this guy, the lawyer, at all, right? Like, the more I mature and kind of just grow in Christ, same, similar tendencies in, in myself. Like, I, have you ever been, I don't know, man, have you ever been confused? Or have you ever wanted something really, really bad? Like, I don't know, a, a position at a, 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 a firm or like a school you want to get into or the one that, you know, the one, <laughs> a relationship or, you know, I don't know, like uh, the house. I don't know. My, my wife and I, we got, we got our hearts broken twice, you know, trying to purchase a house. Oh, we finally got, we have a nice little townhouse, but have you ever walked into a house you really like and you're like, this is it? And then someone bids like $500,000 over the listing. <laughs> devastating, devastating. Right? Where's all this money coming from? Um, and then the thing doesn't work out or the confusion perpetuates. And have you ever, have you ever approached God like that? Like, God, what the heck? You know, like, I'm not like one of those guys. <laughs> you see those guys, right? Like, you see the way they act? Like, I'm, not, I'm, I'm a good guy. Like, I don't think the lawyer is the only one who has that kind of conflict inside of them right we we try to live a good life we do the best we can and then certain things maybe don't work out the way we anticipate and we approach God with this justification you know I'm definitely definitely guilty of it but as I was thinking about you know like this self-justification this rationalization um, I came across this book and you guys some of you guys that may have heard of this book uh, Dr. Uh, Christina Cleveland, it's called The Disunity in Christ, really, really impacted me. But she introduces this concept in her book. Um, it's called, um, again, you guys, some of you guys may have heard of it, groupthink. Have you guys heard of the sociological concept of groupthink? So it's this social science, uh, again, the social science concept. And um, groupthink, some of the, the, the ramifications of groupthink is like, whether we're conscious of it, I'm a counselor, by the way, so I'm all in the subconscious stuff. Right? <laughs> Whether we're conscious of it or not, uh, in the subconscious, maybe even we have these rules, right? And these rules, again, whether we're fully conscious of it or not, they divide right and wrong, right? And it can be very subtle, but Chris, uh, uh, Dr. Cre uh, Cleveland suggests that Right and wrong Christianity, it takes on very subtle but significant manifestations, right? So some of the characteristics of right and wrong, and she actually uses more of a uh, direct, um, honest description. She says, right and wrong Christianity or group think, if not checked, is collective narcissism, right? Uh, but some of the characteristics of right and wrong Christianity... Um, we overestimate our invulnerability or high moral stance, right? We overestimate our tendency to be right. Uh, we collectively rationalize the decisions we make. Uh, we demonize or stereotype other groups and their leaders. Uh, we have a culture of uniformity where an individual censor themselves and others so that the facade of the group uh, unanimity is maintained. And we contain members who take it upon themselves to protect the group leader by keeping information, theirs or that of the group members from that leader, right? So those are some of the characteristics, right? So it's like this collective tradition, this collective norm, this collective sense of right and wrong, right? 
and then people who come in with opposing or different perspectives, there's almost like a mechanical, there's like a mechanical response to, we're gonna filter this thing, <laughs> right? And we're, we're not sure if we're gonna let that thing in, right? It's almost like default, this, this tendency, this normative tendency to protect, right? Al doesn't seem like that kind of guy. Al doesn't really take himself too serious, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, so obviously we could see just logically like groupthink can be what? Dangerous, right? Intellectually it could be dangerous, but I have a follow-up question inspired by Dr. Cleveland. How does groupthink feel? Right? I'm a counselor, right? How does it feel? And I think groupthink feels good, right? Groupthink feels good. It has an emotional uh, approval affirmation, right? That transcends the intellectual. It feels right. And that's the more dangerous part. Uh, groupthink actually feels great. Some of the benefits of groupthink. Group and you know, you could take this back to uh, childhood stuff, right? I've got a lot of Asians in the house, man. Do you remember taking your lunch to school? Right? Do you remember that? It was a painful experience. <laughs> you open your lunch tray, your white friends, your black friends, your Hispanic friends, right? What is that? Is it moving? <laughs> Our lunches were marginalized, right? We were oppressed. But, you know, Dr. Cleveland says it starts even from uh, adolescence, like childhood, right? Like, we, we want to gravitate towards what? Power. Right. Right? We want to kind of toe that line with the power. And we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll, like, you know, whatever. Whatever it is. You know, athletics, academics, uh, neighborhood. Right? Even, like, silly things like food. Like, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to associate with the, the, the guy, who, the long-haired guy who bring, brought anchovies, little anchovies, right? We disassociate. <laughs> We disassociate. We're, I'm like, yo, man, you don't know what you're missing, bro. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> so we disassociate, right, from, from things that are opposite of power, opposite of right. And we, we try to associate with right and truth. And again, she says it starts from a very young age, this social identity theory. And um, it again, it makes us feel good, right? It makes us feel good. So group think, that's another sub topic that's worth mentioning it feels good and now jesus comes into the picture right jesus comes into the picture and how do you think jesus responds to uh, and i'm interjecting uh group think into this parable but how do you think jesus responds to collective group think in this parable right which is reinforced through what what's the vehicle that they use or this lawyer uses to align with power the law right how does Jesus respond to this? Uh, he exposes the insanity. Right? He expose, exposes the insanity. He exposes the sickness, the sinfulness of unchallenged, unthreatened groupthink. Uh, we're going to go back to the passage, verses 30 to 37. Uh, and Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? He wanted, um, beginning in verse 30, he says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest 
happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he, was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So Jesus presents this parable, right, to educate this lawyer. And um, I did a little bit of study on, so this path, this particular road uh, from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, I guess a lot of uh, priests and, it's like pastors. Where do a lot of pastors live? I don't know. Fullerton? There's a lot of pastors in Fullerton. Uh, so it's kind of like Jerusalem and Jericho. But, you know, unfortunately, the, uh, the path to get to from Jericho, where a lot of Levites and priests resided, to Jerusalem, it was a windy path, you know, and um, it was filled with all these opportunities for thieves and robbers to kind of uh, surprise people. So it was known as a treacherous path, right? Uh, but the priests are introduced and the Levites are introduced, and the Levites are descendants of Levi, they're not descendants of Aaron, and they assisted the priests, and the priests were actually descendants of Aaron. Um, so Levites and priests, they were uh, cr crucial to te temple functionality, right? Experts in the law, uh, model, model kind of role models in, in the community. Um, these two people, right, the Levites and the, the priest, they come across this guy and most likely it, it's, a, it's a kindred person, right? Most likely it's a Jewish person. They come, come across this guy pretty much like dead, right? Like, um, have you guys been to Santa Monica recently? I don't want to disrespect Santa Monica. But we're, we're eating in Santa Monica a month ago and there was a guy, it was like a nice high-end restaurant. There was this guy on the street. I could have swore he was dead, right? The, our cities are falling apart. Anyways, let's get back to this. <laughs> right, um, a Levite, a priest, they come across this dead guy, and what do they do? The text says they cross to the other side, right? And then they go on their way. What? Why? Right? Have you guys heard of any explanations of this? Just like, you know, priests and Levites suck, right? That's, uh, that's the conclusion, right? You know, like... Uh, in Leviticus 21, I think it's 21.1, right? You know there's a uh, rules for the priest, and you know what one of the rules are? Don't touch what? Dead people, right? If you touch dead people, what's going to happen? You're ceremonially unclean. The only way you could touch a dead person if it's your family, right? Then you could touch, touch the dead person and go do your functions at the temple, right? In my opinion... There's no concrete, like, literal evidence here in the text. You know, it doesn't say that this is the reason. But I think those are probably the reasons, you know. This is, I like this about the Bible where you can kind of fill in the gaps, right, and kind of use your theological imagination. But I think that's a safe. They wanted to, the, the priest and the Levites, they wanted to guard ceremonial purity so much, right. It was forefront of their mind. 
right? Like people disrespect uh, Jewish people in the Old Testament, and I try really, I really try not to do that because I think myself, I would not sacrifice as much as they sacrifice. <laughs> like people are like, come to church, I'm like, what time? <laughs> That's too early, bro. <laughs> right? Like I would not sacrifice a tenth of what ancient Jewish people sacrificed. Like they had a deep, deep, profound reverence for God, right? That ran so deep that they literally, in my opinion, gave their life, right, in service to the Lord. I ain't doing that, right? I'm not. And I don't have any real guilt about it. I don't know what that says about my faith. But I'm not doing what they're doing. Right? So they have a deep, profound, uh, profound respect for Yahweh. But you under, if you interject Dr. Cleveland's sociological concept, right, we have this thing called uh, temple worship. And we believe in this thing so much. Right? I'm giving my life. You're giving your life. You're giving all your resources your time. We have to protect this thing. It becomes to the point where it's borderline obsession with this thing. But in our heart, we have the right intention, right? It's to the point where we're protecting it. Because what do Jewish people think about non-Jewish people, right? They consider them what? Less than, right? Because they're not holy and pure. So they protect this thing so much to the point where Jesus delineating and pointing out, you guys have blind spots, right? What's the point of my law, right? It's to heal, affirm, enfold, encourage, inspire, motivate, right? And you literally, because you're so obsessed with ceremonial purity, you're so consumed with it, you just walk past a dead person, right? Or a potentially dead person. Levi too, right? Levi too, same pattern. Juxtapose this to some of your church experience. I've been a part of churches where members of the church, like the core, core members of the church, like they give 10% to 25% of their income, right? We're talking like just consistent, faithful. When we have prayer meetings, they're there all the time, right? All types of like, even when it's morning prayer, right? They do so much service to keep this thing going. When we have youth retreats, they're the first ones to volunteer, right? So much service, right? And it's to the point where I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm floored and awed. But this is a church of deconstruction, right? So let's deconstruct a little bit, right? <laughs> Tell me some of your church experiences with all that service, with all that effort and energy invested. Tell me the underbelly if there's not covert and overt racism, right? If there's not covert and overt what? Sexism. And I don't want to get into the whole homosexual debate right now, but it's like homophobia. Tell me there's not that, right? And as I step out of traditional religious systems and organizations, I'm like, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? Right? We profess this stuff, and again, I respect the people that I'm referencing right now at these churches, because they do stuff that I could, you know, like, let's go, let's go morning prayer. I'm like, man, are the waves good? <laughs> I might, I'll meet you after, right? Like, they do things I can't, I, I can't imagine, right? But again, that underbelly, right? And that's the problem. And I, if I were to critique them a little bit more, 
they've consciously or subconsciously created a power structure and an infrastructure where contrary opinion, it will not penetrate, right? You will be what? Marginalized, pushed to the edges, and eventually what? Pushed out, right? Slowly but surely, you will be pushed out. Um, the priest and the Levites this is a little repetitive. The priest and the Levites, you guys get it, right? You guys get, the, get what I'm trying to say. So Jesus introduces this third character, the Samaritans. And I'm going to refresh your memory about the Samaritans. Jewish people despise the Samaritans. Why? Half-breeds. Half and half, right? Half-Jewish and half-Gentile. Right? So there was, there was tension. They, they thought they were inferior, right? And Jesus, who, who does Jesus present as the protagonist in the story the Samaritan right Jesus was not a people pleaser right? he didn't care so he presents the Samaritans as the heroes of the story review the Samaritans bandaged this guy's wounds poured oil and wine which is what costly put the man on his donkey took him to an inn paid for the inn and most likely came back to pay any difference right Again, Jesus knew about the tension between Jewish people and Samaritans, and he presents the Samaritan as the protagonist. Why? He's challenging the lawyer's what? Groupthink. Right? He's challenging the lawyer's worldview, and he's providing a cross-ethnic, social, cultural, relational lesson, which, if the lawyer really accepts, digests, and processes, enriches energizes his faith is no longer about aligning with power or aligning with right his faith becomes what true real authentic right and that's the invitation um, in closing guys um, I want to just there's a there's a thing I think in your bulletins real quick there's this guy dr. Russell Jung um, he did a lot of ministry in the South Bay. I mean, not in the South Bay, but in, uh, in the Bay Area. And he worked, uh, man, he worked with some pretty, in some pretty tough areas. And through his years, I mean, this guy's not only like in it, like he's working with Cambodian, Latino refugees, but he's also very, very smart. He's a professor at Stanford. If, if I got into Stanford, my mom would like, she would resurrect, right? <laughs> She's not dead, but she was just like, she would be so happy. Right? Uh, but this guy's a professor at Stanford, so he has this intellectual prowess, but he also has this real-life experience. And he's, he deconstructed the whole way we do missions, right? And he's saying that we need to move away from American evangelicalism, right, which is more about power and flourishing of people and, you know, like identifying your gifts and my gifts and we come in with this expertise and we have programs and all this stuff like we know what, what's going to lift you guys up right we come with this preconceived plan and he's saying in his opinion and in experience all that is what pointless <laughs> doesn't really work and I ask you I ask you do you do you, I agree I've been to so many mission trips. <laughs> I've been to, like, have you guys done the, the thing, the pamphlet, where you go on the street corner and you do the four paths to Christ thing? <laughs> no? The street, like, I think none of that stuff. If I'm honest with myself, none of that stuff, in my humble opinion, was effective, right? I'm not saying it was, it was not valuable at all, but I don't think it was effective. What he's saying is shift our mindset, right? Shift our mindset. He's a, what, Chinese Hakka immigrant. 
right, who's acculturated in the United States, and just through his worldview and his lens, he thinks more like a guest, right? And he think, he says that's more of a effective and, and, and more valuable uh, impacting approach and just be simple, right? Based in relationships over time, right? And what does a guest do? A guest is what? Very curious, right? Hey, what are you about, man? Where you from? Oh, what? That's what you like? You're a Dodgers fan? Cool. Wow, your baby's so cute. <laughs> right? Like genuine curiosity about people over an extended period of time. And like he shares a lot of uh, examples in his book and in his lecture of he's a Stanford professor, right? He could actually buy a house in Montrose. Right? <laughs> like uh, he went to this Cambodian Latino refugee place and, you know, with good intentions. And I'll close with this story. And, you know, it's the hood, man. So people are like, one day he came out of his apartment and, like, the tires from his car were gone. <laughs> so he had his car on bricks. They pretty much repoed his car. You know who saved, You know who helped him out? The Cambodian gangsters. Because <laughs> they were like, Russell's, Russell's our guy, man. You know, Russell's not here. With, he doesn't want to align with power and truth. He's not using us to sell something. Like, he's just our dude. So we know the guys who stole this stuff. It was 48 hours. Right? They, they came back with the tires. Reciprocity. Right? When we interact with believers and non-believers, it's like mutual edification, interdependence. And we're all dependent upon who? God. All right, guys, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, um, man, what the, the perch is doing here. Uh, I think if we get lost in... Uh, aspects and communities of groupthink um, unfortunate result is our faith our spiritual vitality wanes um, so we thank you for communities like the perch who have the courage um, the willingness uh, to be a minority voice and say no right god is real god is alive working in and through us and let us take energy and effort to hear his guidance in his voice we thank you in jesus name we pray